John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 122.LV1933, certificate number 33734, Billy Jack. We got the law here, Billy Jack. When policemen break the law, then there isn't any law. Just a fight for survival. If someone is listening to this in, say, the year 2050... John. 2050. Civilization has not fallen. We'll be alive in 2050, hopefully, hopefully right? One yeah. would hope. Sure. Here's my question. Are movie theaters alive? Does a movie theater exist if someone's listening to this in 2050? Or do we have to explain movie theaters? So we know movie theaters were real big business from the 20s through the 50s, and then everybody was afraid television was going to ruin them. And so then they invented Cinemascope or whatever to get people in the theater. 3D. We talked about Smell-O-Vision. There's been basically 70 years of movie theater fear that they're going away. And then in the 70s, there was the resurgence of young Hollywood that was getting people back in the theaters. It's coming up on this show. And then the 80s. We all went to the movies in the 80s. But then what happened? Uh, It was uh, a Blockbuster video and all that was supposed to ruin movie theaters again. They survived home video probably because of the gap, right? There's, you know, movies would... There's a home video gap! Movies would play in theaters and you'd want to see what everybody was talking about. You did not want to wait until, what, two or three months later when they showed on the rental shelves. And then they wouldn't be available for sale well into the 90s. They wouldn't be available for sale for another three months to three to six months after that. Right, long way. And then they were expensive. But then streaming, oh boy, that's just ruined the movies. Final nail in the coffin? I mean, the movie theaters were always wary of streaming, which immediately killed off video stores in like an hour and a half. It was like Omicron ending Delta. Like streaming was so much more virulent than having to go to Blockbuster that people were immediately like, oh, perfect. I'll just press this button. Streaming definitely ruined the entire indie rock music business. Because of... Because who... I mean, there's a whole generation that doesn't think music should cost money. Oh, right. You're, you're ta- just talking about everything post-Napster. Yeah, I don't mean m- streaming movies. If, if anything, that might help. You mean pirating. You're like, I mean you're, pirating. You're, you're Metallica right now. Well, no. All you're the, mad. Um, the whole... The whole well, I mean, Spotify, like, it's, it's pretty well documented that we get paid point zero 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 two percent two cents per... Her song and you'll like it you will like it you'll be happy with your 75 dollar check I my just, friend i just found out amazon is actually the good one yeah because they pay point 
0.002 instead of 0.0002 cents. Like, yeah. They pay you 10 times as much. It's crazy how how great it is to get 0.002 cents. <laughs> That's why we did that uh, entry about the mill, so you could right. understand your royalty checks. Right. Like, the thousandth of a dollar is very relevant to an indie rocker. But when was the last time you went into a movie theater and bought a tub of popcorn and watched a movie? No, twice a week. Yeah, and I went <laughs> I to one I, I was gonna ask three you, days ago. Oh, you have? Yeah. I thought you were going to say before the pandemic. No, no, no. Because you're not a huge theater goer. No, but I, go, but I enjoy going to the movies. And throughout the pandemic, I went to the movies because there was no one in the theater. <sighs> Me too. You it could was, just wear an N95 and it was empty. And you're like, this is a hundred times safer than Safeway. It was awesome. You know, in the early, what, the 2000, mid-2000s, I guess, they built that... Uh, the landing mall at in Renton. Yeah. And they built it right before the economic collapse, 2007. Perfect time to build a mall. It was amazing. And so all, and it was one of those like outdoor malls. Um, and then they built, kind of built to look like an, like a little old main, main street yes. town. Like there's a PF Chang's, but it's not connected to JC Penney's. There's a little right. walkway in between. You get out and walk. So all of the places were empty. They were just, you know, they all had paper in the windows that were like, coming soon, a thing that's not coming soon. Like, it's some, ge- some generic picture of a women's clothing store. Yeah, or like two people being very happy. It's so sad. And so from 2008 to like 2000, God, I have to say 14, there was nothing there except a movie theater, and there was no one in the movie theater. And I treated it like it was my private screening room and went all the time, because, you know, why wouldn't you? And that was how it felt in the pandemic. So I just went to see the uh, the, see the Batman. I assumed so. Yeah. Went to see the Batman and ate two large tubs of popcorn. It's a three-hour movie. You got to. You know, it's a three-hour movie that if it were a two-hour movie would be 100% better. I don't know how to do that math. You don't like the... Um, like I was... I already had to... I knew it was going to be a three-hour movie, and I kind of had to pee already. Yeah, and then I peed twice, and then it kind of feels like it's winding down. And I look at my, cl- I look at my phone, and I'm like, "Oh, this is one of those movies that has a surprise hour third act," and there is. And I didn't mind it, but my bladder did. Well, it's just all the times when Batman gives some long soliloquy about. I don't know how things, I don't even remember the soliloquies. He just talks for five minutes about justice or revenge or something. And it's like, get on with it. This has little to do with Billy Jack, but I did like it. I like that. He's I, liked a, it too. I like that. He's a detective. He, yeah. he's like, um, he spends the whole movie just like kind of Nicholson in, um, Chinatown, just showing up at crime scenes and opening drawers and yeah. stuff. And he's like, Oh, I can solve this riddle. But yeah, I read all the reviews that were like, this one's not blah, blah, blah. And I realized, oh, movie reviewers are also really struggling right now (laughs) because these reviews are irrelevant. It's a good movie. I think you're trying to get a hot take now if you're a reviewer of anything. Yeah. Because there's no safe print industry jobs anymore. Yeah. It's all an economy of clicks, just like anything else. I stay off the internet as best I can, but you know, the Batman reviews is the one time. Well, because I'm, (laughs) because I'm following the war in Ukraine, then I'm there. Right. And there's all this clickbait. And of course, anything that says Ken Jennings in it, I click on. And was I in the Batman review? No, the clickbait around you is so hilarious. It's like, will Ken Jennings survive? And then you click on it and it's just a regurgitated, like you were hoping I'd be in a a tank full of fire ants. I was like, will Ken Jennings survive? (laughs) I saw him two days ago. What happened? (laughs) And then it's like, Oh, Mayam Blanick, Blamick. No, what's her name? Mayam. No. Yeah. Me, Mayam. Mayam. Blanick. Blanick. Manola Blanick. Do you think Manola Blanick's hosting Jeopardy? Blam. 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 
Mayim Blam. There's an hour Nick. left in the show, and it's going to be all John trying to say Mayim Bialik. Bialik, Bialik, right. And, uh, and it talks about, it says in the headline, like, Mayim Bialik, big news. And I go, and it's like, she wants to do Jeopardy. And it's like, she's doing Jeopardy. And also, yeah, of course she does. It That's happens, not news. But you know, this happens to me. They, they know Jeopardy is clicks now. So even if I tweet, oh, oh I've just got revisions back on my new book, that goodhousekeeping.com will have like, Ken Jennings reveals new project. Yeah, or Ken Jennings revisionism. <laughs> like, what are you, what? Is there really? <laughs> anyway, so I'm clicking on stuff, and then the Batman reviews. I like a good movie review, or I used to. But yeah, it's like full. I, of, I had all of Ebert's paperbacks I, when I was a young I did person too. And I read. Do you? Oh, you don't remember? I'm sure, but there was a there was a zine in the late '80s, early '90s. I think it was published in Portland. It was called Snipe Hunt. And it was, it was a, it was a proper newspaper, like, uh, like the stranger or the, the Seattle weekly, like a weekly paper. It looked like a little weekly, but it was all record reviews. Oh, wow. And they were the best. They were all capsule reviews and they were the best. They were so snarky. They made like old Q magazine seem like good housekeeping. And I would just read it, records. I had no intention of ever listening to, but I would just read these reviews and bask in them. So I read the Batman reviews and they all had hot takes and their hot takes were all stupid. The only thing you can say about it is they should have edited it a little tighter. I accidentally saw the Batman like, bef- like opening day. How, how, do, how, how, does, how does one accidentally see? So we got back from Hawaii. We went to Hawaii over the, the week my kids get off in See, February. This is why you can't tax the rich. You can't get, tax the rich, or they won't go to Kauai over President's Day right. and and stimulate the local economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Think of all the mahi mahi tacos that would have got un, unpurchased. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and uh, do you buy lays uh, at, at the airport? Do you I get lays you for the, everybody. I thought you meant the potato chips. Everybody. Oh, my daughter said the other day she was like, "We never get lays." And I like Lay's. How does she even know that? Ex- oh, you thought. Somebody has given her a potato chip. And and uh, I said, darling, everyone likes Lay's. Lay's are replacement level <laughs> potato chips. There's no, there's no, that's not news, but we don't get them because I don't like potatoes. At Hawaii airports, you do not see people, you do not see mainlanders getting Lay's lifted onto their shoulders anymore like you did in 1970. <sighs> it used to be uh, the, for the airlines used to give them, right? Yeah, for futurelings that that didn't go to the didn't go to Hawaii in the the mid 70s, you used to get off the plane, and it was a uh, you would always walk down the ladder because yeah. there weren't uh, there weren't jetways jetways, and they would put a lay on every single person that got off the airplane. Oh, so nice! It's like getting to heaven, and they give you wings and a harp. But now you can buy them in the airport. You come down the yeah. ladder and you have to go over to a vendor and say, we want this experience. There should be a vending machine. Yeah, full of like slightly wilted it's got It's got bags of potato chip lays and then it's also got neckwear lays. So you were there. We got back from Hawaii and my son, who did not go with us because he had a different spring break and kind of, he actually bailed on the trip. He's like, I'm going to go to Portland with my friends. And He's then, a grown man and now. And then he didn't. He can make his own decisions. He talks like this. Uh, it's like, mom, do my laundry, but I'm not going on this vacation. He was like, when are we going to the Batman? You want to go to the Batman? And I was like, sure. I love a good Batman reboot every two years or whatever. Right. And so I, I get out my phone to try to see, I've got like the, um, I've got the monthly pass app. So I just see every movie. Oh, I heard about this monthly pass app. It's pretty nice. Yeah. I heard that it's pretty nice. Yeah, I mean, you, you break even at like two movies. 
So if you happen to go, like, hypothetically, to five to eight movies a month, like, I'm not saying I don't. Say, for instance. Uh, you know, you're, you're basically, you're printing money. You can't afford not to do it, John. <laughs> okay. uh, and I look at my phone, and I'm like, well, let's see, when can we go? I'm recording Omnibus Wednesday. Let's go Thursday. So we, no, I think I was, were, were we not recording that week? I think, I, yeah, I think I looked at Thursday. So we open up Thursday, and I'm like, oh, there's no matinee shows. Oh, there are, but they start at three. So we booked, like, a, we found a three o'clock in a... Dolby Atmos Theater, where there were like two seats in the back. They weren't together, but we're like, ah, we can make that one guy move. Because um, we were surprised to see it was all sold out. But I remember that happened with Spider-Man as well. All the IMAX and, and Dolby screenings right. sold out to the nerds. So we show up at this theater. We watch the Batman. And it's only like a week later, or like, you know, later that weekend, I start seeing reviews. And I'm like, wait, did that movie just come out? And I found out we had accidentally gone to the first screening on Thursday afternoon, like the early weekend screenings were there people dressed as the batman that would have given it away yeah no i well i I don't know maybe we got there during the trailers nicole kidman was already talking so i was 25 minutes late to the movie and the trailers were still that's the beautiful thing about about reserved seating is you can show up one second before and get the seat you want but you might have to yell at somebody um yeah the theater experience you know, I think if you're our age, it's pretty foundational and you don't understand how people would not like it. But I have friends 10 years younger than me that just watch everything on a little tiny iPhone in 20 minute increments while their kid is napping. And they think of themselves as cinemaphiles. As, as cinemaphiles, yeah. Do you remember the first thing you watched on an iPad? Or no, not an iPad, an i, what was the thing called? It's the phone size, except it didn't, it wasn't a phone. On an iPod? iPod. I never had an iPod that had a screen. Like, I had an iPhone first. I was given an iPod as a gift by a rock band that I was touring with in Europe. And it was like a tour gift because they were very rich and we were not. And they were like, you know what? We should get those guys a gift. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, they bought it. Well, it's not. You just have to be like a very classy rock band. And I should name them Keen. Keen? The, The Keen Band bought us all what at the time were brand new iPods that had screens. Do you feel like this is helpful to the listener that if if they go on tour with Keen, maybe they can get an iPod? If you go on tour with Keen and they don't give you expensive gifts, there's something wrong with your band. (laughs) Uh, They regret having invited you on tour. Anyway, I remember the first time my bass player, Eric, said, oh, uh, here, watch this TV show or movie or whatever. And he had downloaded a movie to this thing. I I never used it. I ended up giving it to somebody. But he handed me this movie, and I tried to watch it on this little thing. Now I do it all the time. But at the time, my brain couldn't fathom it. Like, it was a full film that I was watching on a thing the size of a pack of cigarettes. And I, I, I just, I remember my eyes and head couldn't get around it. And it made me kind of seasick, and I think it might be processed different neurally by the brain. Yeah, well, yeah, right. It's not I mean, just it's not just a mood or a vibe; like it really is hitting different. I as felt the like young people say I felt like a caveman who was being shown a <laughs> you know like a, a, a an IMAX movie of the universe. Are like, you like a dog? Kind of like you're barking at the at the. <laughs> <laughs> at the people walking across the little rectangle. Yeah, I would, like exactly. How, like how'd they dog. get them in there? How do they get out? Like I'm following <laughs> the motion, but I'm not. You're actually the tribal guy getting shown by the anthropologist, and you're like, "How did you get them in here? How did they? <laughs> how is Christian Bale going to get out of this little box?" Exactly. I went around behind it to see, like, <laughs> how, where are they? 
So I didn't, it took me a long time. It was until the iPhone was ubiquitous and, and I'd watched enough YouTube videos of people, you know, slipping and falling downstairs that, that now I can watch a, I still can't like for short videos. Sure. No, no. Oh, I can't watch a long thing, uh, but, but short videos and <laughs> I'm saying that it doesn't confuse my mind anymore. <laughs> you understand how it works. <laughs> but if I'm in a, like, even if I'm on a plane, the guy next to me will be watching a new episode of euphoria on his phone or something. And I will just be like, no, nah, I gotta, I gotta get out my laptop. Let's... But you can watch it on a laptop yeah, because that's the size of an old that's TV. That's the size of the TV we had. <laughs> the aspect ratio is wrong and I, there's no little dials to turn, but I actually have little, Fake dials I Velcro to the side of oh, my laptop, do? and I feel more comfortable. That way. <laughs> I mean, the even far distant listeners may be aware of the coronavirus pandemic of recent years, yeah. and, and that was really hard on theaters because that was all the impetus studios needed to be like, guess what? We now have direct distribution via our streaming deals. Let's just screw over movie theaters because they're closed and can't complain. Let's just put Dune on HBO Max. Instead of in theaters, and what are you going to do, theaters? I can't imagine watching Dune, for instance, on a computer on or at home, at home even, you know, on a big TV at home, because seeing Dune in the theater is is like super immersive, you know, it's exciting, it's a thing. Whereas watching it on TV, you're like, you know, Game of Thrones is is hours and hours and hours of this something about the effort of going out changes the movie and i feel like movie theater chains never capitalize on this they're always just like glowing images on a silver screen <laughs> heartbreak feels good in a place like this but nobody ever says you actually put on pants and therefore you're invested in this you know it, it, it became a little event in your little week and that's really all theaters are selling you put on your your pillbox hat and your white gloves <laughs> And, and they have big searchlights out front. Oh, do Everybody's excited to see lights? Pillow Talk with Doris. Yeah, yeah, I do not remember the searchlights. You don't remember searchlights? Oh, I mean, because I, you were in, in Asia. Well, I remember seeing them in like 50s premieres. Where, no, no, no. Where it, were you? In the 1970s, you'd be driving around, just a normal life, and you'd see searchlights. I always thought they were car lots. You're saying movie theaters still had them? Oh, yeah. and, and I, I'd see them sometimes in the night sky. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's why you would follow the searchlights because it wasn't car lots. It was often something cool. You had to be Batman to go to a movie. Exactly. But no, you or, know, or the be, opening of it. They arcade. had those systems where it was like four searchlights all through the sky. And I remember a few times my mom would say, let's go see what it is. And we, <laughs> and we, my city needs me. <laughs> we'd drive over to the U district or whatever. And it would be like a movie premiere or something, some. Uh, actual event that that we would park and get out. We would use the Goodyear blimp for that. Yeah, a thing that millennials will not understand. You had to wait for a giant lighter than air dirigible <laughs> to appear in the sky, and then you would know a really good college football game was happening or something. But yeah, I th I'm just old enough to have gone to the big theaters downtown before they were divided into five theaters. Me too. Be before Because that was were, the biggest screen. Yeah. If you wanted to see Empire Strikes Back on a big screen, you would go to downtown USA. Well, yeah, and, there, and it was a 2,000-seat theater um, that had fallen into disrepair. And <laughs> yeah. a lot of those got torn down. You know the... the uh, they didn't have video games in the lobby. They couldn't compete with the malls and the burbs. Well, now, that, the, one of the nicest ones, the one that I used to see all the James Bond movies in, is a Banana Republic now. <laughs> and then a bunch of them got torn down. Oh, God, it makes me mad. The theaters are really struggling today um, because you can stay home and watch 1,000 things. They were doing fine in an age when you can stay home and watch Get Smart or Bewitched right. or I Dream of Genie. But 
you know, it's hard to compete. And literally almost everything now is available at home, although some might cost $2.99. So hard for a theater to compete with that. And over the same amount, or the same, roughly the same stretch of time, it probably corresponds with the uh, the theater experience changing to actually changing the, you know, the, the form changing the content, you hmm. know, like the things that'll make it in theaters now are the things that people still feel will be noticeably worse at home on a flat screen TV. So everything's a franchise. Usually something with big explosions. Everything's got to be, yeah, everything's big. Everything's kind of, and partly because it's got to be guaranteed. You know, you, nobody's taking a $150 million flyer on new IP anymore. It's got to be, even if it's a new movie, it's going to have to be the GI Joe movie or some, some IP that your audience will realize. Cause right. that's what marketing has said they want. You don't need a rom-com cause you can watch it at home in your underwear, but and that's what's happening. Genres are just disappearing yeah. from theaters because they're. It turns out they're they're just fine for home viewers. And and direct to video is no longer a, a like a ding on something. I mean, it used to be direct to video meant this is terrible. I mean, maybe prestige or awards wise, but that's you know that's a shrinking influence as well. And it doesn't matter. You know, Bird Box might be terrible, but if a hundred million people watch the new Netflix thing just because Netflix put it on the home screen and it had a star, um, guess what? That's, that's a hit. And in the recent year or two after the pandemic, you know, studios have tried to go back to putting kind of middle brow, um, quality adult entertainment in theaters, you know, can't miss Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg and Guillermo del Toro movies. And they all just tanked. Right. Nightmare Alley, West Side Story, Last Duel. These are all good. In some cases, great movies, Dozens of Oscar nom- nominations and nobody went because. How about that Jennifer Lopez? Uh, uh, marry me. Yeah, marry me. Did that do well uh, in theaters? I love marry me so much. Did you? Oh, you went to see it? No, Maria Semple texted me opening night to be like, "We have to see Marry Me. Come right now." And I was like, "No, I'm good." <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> we have a thing. She, she and well, because I had told her I was crazy about the trailer, which is insane. Yeah, <laughs> marry me was a no <laughs> broke even. I mean, twenty million dollars. That's that's, yeah. that's probably what they paid Jennifer Lopez. Right. I su- I support J Lo and everything she does. You know, John, I deal in answers and questions for a living. I know you do. In that order. I have a lot of questions about how that happened for you. <laughs> it's a little weird. <laughs> and you have so few answers. That's because generally I have the answer first and then oh, sure. the question. Sure, sure, of course. But, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes it can be difficult to hunt down answers to questions. You're on the internet. You've got a real-life question like, how do I find real candidates to fill these job openings that have the right skills? Isn't that the kind of thing you're often wondering as you're Googling? It is, and you know, I've hired a lot of people in my day uh, to work for um, to work in your Tanzanite mines, yeah, and to work for the Roderick Group, and um, I've had very mixed results. I don't really know how to get the right candidates for the job. It's su- the, the Roderick Group is a very specialty operation. You're always, you know, firing people from uh, from Waystar Rodco, yeah, throwing them off the throwing them off the the, the observation platform on the 108th floor we have a lot of government contracts the roderick group uh that you know that i'm not allowed to really talk about but so my employees have to be pretty specialized i mean do you have a solution to this problem let me recommend to you 
Indeed. Indeed. The Roderick Group needs Indeed to be its hiring partner because it's one-stop shopping for attracting, interviewing, and hiring new talent all in one place. But I'm not an expert at this. Is there is there some learning curve where I have to figure out how to do a whole process? No. With, uh, with Indeed's instant match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates and you don't pay unless they meet the must-have requirements you've posted for your Rodri Group jobs. But aren't there a ton of job sites that offer these services? Why would I choose Indeed? Indeed does it all. They deliver four times more hires than all other job sites combined. John, so, you, so you don't have to sit around posting on multiple sites. Let the talent come to you with Indeed.com. They'll partner with you on every step of the hiring process all the way through assessments, virtual interviews, everything till they come on board. Indeed is there for you. Well, I'm ready to start hiring right now, but I'd, I'd like a little enticement. And I know Omnibus often offers futurelings a special deal. What if we sponsored some kind of job credit? Would that be would that wiggle the dial, as it were, for it, you? It would. I kind of feel like uh, that's that's a that's pretty special. What what are we going to offer? You'd probably be pretty impressed if it was like a twenty five dollar sponsored job credit. Yeah, that would that get me off the stool. You'd be even happier if it was a fifty dollar sponsored job Come credit. Come on, who can afford to to pass this opportunity up? You know what? I'm going to sweeten the pot further. Even though you've just said you would be happy with the lower numbers, I'm, I'm not. I don't know why I'm doing this. What are you going to do, money bags? I want you to start hiring right now. I'm going to offer a $75 sponsored job credit. So go to Indeed.com/omnibus to claim your $75 credit. That's correct. Indeed.com/omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As recently as I think 2009, you look at the top 10 movies of the year, and there's a few things where it's like. I mean, it's not like 1979 where Kramer versus Kramer literally made <laughs> That's exactly, every cent in America more than any Bond movie or uh, or Spielberg movie. It's exactly the reference I was just I was it was right on the tip of my tongue. Like, well, remember Kramer versus Kramer? If you all look, that jazz. <laughs> if you look at those years, it literally is you know you know the whatever the Best Picture winner is you know right. Cabaret or The French Connection or whatever will literally make. More money than all movies put together That's today. It's so funny because so many of those movies were such a drag. It's been a huge change. But as recently as 2009, you look at the list and it'll have The Blind Side or, yeah, yeah. or Meet the Parents or just, you know, the kind of replacement filler grown-up movie that we would all go to. And now almost doesn't exist and almost certainly will not exist no matter when you're listening to this. For somebody our age, uh, to go back and look at those lists like top movies of – 1976 or best, uh, like the, the, uh, the hot 100 for 1965. Sometimes it's funny cause it's just forgotten stuff, but also it's, you, you're just reminded of like, no, oh wow. Oh, right. that came out. Yeah. Oh man. If it's your life lifetime, you remember everything. Yeah. If it's 10 years earlier, you'd be like the Aristocats made the equivalent of $300 million <laughs> or, or, or something like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's super true in publishing. You know, you look at the bestseller lists, and it is not what eventually got in the canon. Yeah, right. You know, it's all the books you see at at Airbnbs and, and thrift stores. It's all Thornbirds. Yeah. You know, or there's oh. no institutional memory of these Barbara Taylor Bradford books. That's the crazy stuff, to see which movies made the most money in a year. Yeah. Um, 
because they often will will go into the next year and it's like, oh, this movie came out in November <laughs> right. of 1984, but well, it, that's part of our story. Movies oh. used to roll out slower, right? And and the change to the 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 thing where we have today, where you look at a top ten and it's entirely um, the third movie in a Harry Potter spinoff, followed by the fourth movie in a Avengers spinoff, followed by the second movie in a Twilight. Sp- you know, it's just. You can guess how Franch- I feel about fr- this. Franchise after franchise. Yeah. And some of these movies are just fine, and some are not. They're all basically TV shows that should have been TV shows. And now, after Mandalorian, probably going forward, will be TV shows, right? Yeah, I mean, now that now that TV Star Wars is better than theatrical Star Wars. So far, TV Marvel is not better than theater Marvel, but that'll, that'll be the death knell right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the... Um, <sighs> You know, in a in a weird way, the story of how this all changed, how movies went from Kramer versus Kramer and two thousand one being the biggest movies in America to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Mr. Grindelwald number six being the biggest movie in America. I'm guessing you've watched two thousand one recently. Yeah. Yeah. Within the last year. I think we talked about you showing your kid two thousand one, right? Tried to. <laughs> Tried to. <laughs> That's a movie where you just can't believe, oh, the monkey part is 45 minutes, you know, like, but to me, that's the, that's the, that's the selling point of that movie. Like what is happening here? I still want to just watch the inside of that space station. Just watch people out for a jog. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because at this point in my life, I've seen so many movies. I don't even care anymore if the movie's good or bad. I just want to say like, what is even happening? We did watch the Disney uh, super film, The Black Hole. (gasps) <gasps> and my daughter stuck it out. I haven't seen it since it came out. Well, I hadn't either. Does it hold up? Whatever that means. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, it doesn't have a good reputation as a film, but I'd say it holds up. Black Hole was a Disney's attempt to cash in on Star, Star Wars, Wars. and uh, It's way darker. When Star Wars came out, yeah, it's, it's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, right? Maximilian Shell's yeah. like Captain Nemo type. Yeah. You know, movies were very different in 1977 when Star Wars came out. They were just beginning a new era. You know, Jaws had come out in 1975, and um, that's usually heralded as the beginning of of what we now see every time you go to a theater today, the blockbuster era. Every movie seemingly kind of engineered to be a big, dumb, I guess, stereotypically dumb, mass audience hit. Right. And Jaws is not a, you know, there's no better made movie than Jaws. Um but there is something to the Peter Biskind critique that Jaws is not about anything the way that the other big hit movies of that time, One, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Dog Day Afternoon or Godfather 2, are clearly about people and society. Isn't Jaws about the, the romance between Robert Shaw and... Uh, and the shark. Uh, not, not the shark. Robert Shaw wants to F the shark, and we all know it. <laughs> That's what he's thinking about the whole time the yeah. U.S.'s independence it's is, a, it's is a, sinking. It's a revenge F, too. <laughs> Uh, Hate F. Sorry, you think it's between the relationship between... Uh, Robert Shaw and... Uh, the cop, Scheider? No, the guy from Goodbye Girl. Dreyfus. Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus. I think the Biskin take on that is that um, Shaw represents conservative America. Hmm. He dies. Yeah. Dreyfus represents young, goofy counterculture America. He's basically impotent. It's up to Roy Scheider, the the solid centrist cop authority figure to actually run the show. Authority figure who's in love with his wife and just wants to make everybody safe. And it's a deeply conservative impulse to have like your your good hearted family man, police chief be the uncomplicated hero. 
Yeah, but he's against the 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 used car salesman mayor, and he just wants people to be able to have a good time on the beach. But he's also concerned yeah, with anxiety. It's basically beach blanket bingo. The, mm-hmm. the moral of that movie is family should be able to have a good time at the beach. Yeah, that's that, that's Spielberg's <laughs> bold take. <laughs> On Jaws. If you can afford to get to Nantucket. Oh, no, I guess it was Martha's Vineyard, right? It's a fake version yeah. of Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. yeah, it's Amity Island. That's why you can't tax the rich. They can't take exactly. that ferry to Amity. Exactly. No, see, in 75, it was a different time. Those were actual middle-class Americans. Yeah, but, right. And it was never, I mean, Martha's Vineyard was never Nantucket, let's be honest. This is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I've never kind of bought that whole, um, you know, the beginning of the blockbuster era was... Jaws was doom be just, you know, because, oh, I see. but I watched, I have to say, I watched Raiders the other night for the first time in, I don't know, five to 10, whenever my kids saw it five to 10 years ago, because we're doing, we found a, a, a critics poll online, a recent critics poll, 200, 200, 300 people, best movies of the eighties. And I was like, this is perfect. We're going to do these in order. Do the right thing. Blue velvet, raging bull, the shining. And we finally got to Raiders last night. It's funny, like five of the top six were badly reviewed in their time. It's just you and Mindy, right? You're not showing yeah, the no, shining to your kids. There's no club here. <laughs> okay. We have no friends. <laughs> we just watch a movie at night and yeah, yeah, right. we're always like, what do we watch? So we like to have some structure. And Raiders, I mean, first of all, he he climbs on that submarine. How does he do that? And then they don't submerge? Hours later, I mean, I guess that's he's, the he's thing. dripping later when yeah. he he's dripping wet when he emerges later at the base. Yeah, the plot, I guess. I mean, either he climbed up in the conning tower and had a great trip. Is he just lashed to the conning tower with a whip and they never fully submerged? The thing is, if the sub didn't submerge, then they'd open the conning tower and they'd drive it, it from up there. Oh, right? that's true. Yeah. yeah, they wouldn't be looking out at, through a periscope, they'd be up driving it. So that part, I feel like, strains credulity. Now, the face the melting <laughs> and the, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, I believe. I was deeply, you know, having not seen it for a while. Because, you know, if you've seen a movie a hundred times, you really can't see it with new eyes. But okay. this time I kind of was, and I was thinking, this really is a movie about nothing. It's a big shaggy dog story. It's a Rube Goldberg, you know, it's full of little Rube Goldberg machines where... Right. You know, somebody lights a fire and the fire heads toward Indy and Marion has to hand him a bottle and he clonks the guy and moves just in, you know, it's, it's full of this kind of joy of cinema. Yeah. Kind Airplane of is incident. slowly moving around and you know, somebody's going to get that propellers coming. Yeah. Like it's all beautifully choreographed, but it's, it's like a Jackie Chan or a, a Buster Keaton movie. Right. Like there's really no underpinnings to that movie at all. This is a movie where the hero at the end learns the Judeo Christian God is real and still performing miracles and yet, in a time of war, and yet he has nothing to say or think about that. Yeah. Oh, he, I, he just goes on a date with his girl in Washington, D.C. I always wondered about that. Like, if this really, like, that is a world-ending bit of knowledge. Think like, of the existential <laughs> crisis you would get if you actually saw Yahweh kill 100 Nazis. <laughs> but it, but it, that movie is Indy's sold. trouble. He's just happy the rope's burned. It works because everyone is so charming, right? Like, you would watch... Yeah, uh, you would watch Harrison Ford open a jar of tomatoes when he's thirty-five years old, and everybody else is chewing up the scenery. Right? There's no dead air, and now, like, I watched one of those Spideyverse movies that was kind of just—it just felt like an Archie comic book, and no one was interesting. There wasn't a person on the screen that I felt like I'll watch you, um, except be- for Marissa Tomei, and I would watch Marissa Tomei just stare at a jar. That's of tomatoes. how we know it's generational. The uh, the person on the screen that was of your time, you're like, this is the style that makes me think of a movie star. Whereas my kids are like, 
Zendaya is so good in that movie. You know, they're just looking for something else. Yeah, I, I guess. But I just feel like everybody else is in an episode of The O.C. And <laughs> and I don't know. There was something about those Spielberg movies where though they did feel so much larger than life. But you're right. I was 12 years old. They're just about the craft. Like, you watch that movie today and you're still like, there's like nobody, you know, there's three people today who could make this movie. And one of them is still Spielberg, you know? Yeah. Like, because, uh, like the you know, the degree of difficulty in almost every scene is insane. And he's doing it all with, with hardly any tricks. Yeah. It feels, it feels like a movie when the, when the most dangerous thing in it is a paper mache rock <laughs> is so different than a movie where, where uh, it's almost commonplace that there's a 10 story tall monster made out of flame that came from an alternate universe. The movie's got to end with 5,000 computer generated somethings flying yeah. across the screen at all times. Yeah. So we sound like cranky old people, but uh, it's not the first time, <laughs> <laughs> but even Raiders, which today seems kind of um, sweet and sedate. You know, if you watch it through, through a modern, you know, the, comparing it to the other movies of the time, you're like, something has happened. And now in Reagan's America, this kind of empty escapist thing is what we all want. Right. Although what happens in deer hunter exactly? <laughs> There's an there's an hour and a half long wedding. The wedding? Yeah, it starts with the wedding. Today, you know, people just fast forward the wedding. <laughs> no, you gotta watch when, the whole when thing. When are they gonna start playing Russian roulette? Um, weirdly, the story of how that change happened, how we got to this world of kind of big, uncomplicated, audience-pleasing movies at all costs. We're 32 um, minutes into this episode, by the way. Then let's say Billy Jack. Billy Jack. <laughs> it's less an artistic thing than actually a financial uh change that oh. led to this oh and it's all billy jack's fault huh um say what billy jack is a kind of a independent 1970s movie that there might not be that much cultural memory left of right it, now it's not black exploitation it's indian exploitation yeah a white writer director actor plays a half navajo uh ex-green beret hop keto expert um Mystery Man Maverick type. Steven Seagal. I was going to say Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Um, but you're right. He's, he's high kicking things. So yeah, Steven Seagal in a hat. Um, weirdly, Billy Jack does not first appear in the 1971 movie Billy Jack, where you would think he first appears. Um, he first appears in a 1967 motorcycle movie called The Born Losers. Now, the mid-60s were a time, a boom time for motorcycle club movies. Mm. Um, it was a boom time for real motorcycle clubs. That's, that's the thing America. that happened. Hell's Angels is a post-war uh, development, 1948, California, named for named kind of in honor of the the kind of glamorous names that uh, American service members men would give their squadrons. Sure, or, fighter uh, pilots and bombers. Exactly. Um Hell's Angels does not have an apostrophe. And to this day, if you go to their website, they will say, maybe you're worried about the apostrophe, but we're not. Is that, they're, they're worried about whether or not you're worried about it? Well, no, they're, well, they tell you they're not worried about it. I see. Well, that seems like protesting too much. Yeah. Basically, you guys forgot the apostrophe and it's time to own up. Uh, don't pretend it's you know, like you're too cool for an apostrophe. But between, um, you know, Mar Marlon Brando's the wild one kind yeah. of brought the idea of, Scary delinquents on motorcycles to to suburban America in the mid fifties, but this boom happened actually in the mid sixties, probably because of Hunter S. Thompson's book, where he spends some time with the hell, you know, he spends some time in a motorcycle club, uh, and that led to 
Peter Fonda's 1966 movie, Wild Angels, um, which was a Roger Corman movie, you know, the famous low-budget producer who would make a movie in a matter of days for, you know, days instead of months for $100,000 instead of a million dollars. And these were all enormously profitable. And he's still alive, by the way. Corbin's 96. or really? He will turn 96 next month as we record this. Uh, and he's a legend because, he, you know, he, the, he would get young writers and directors to make these movies. And so you would not have Francis Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, John Sayles, Ron Howard. What, they all started making motorcycle movies? They all started making low-budget movies of one kind or another right. for Roger Corman. You know, he, and he had hits at the time with, um, uh, and, you know, he was making movies in a lot of different genres. You know, he would, he would take public domain Edgar Allan Poe things and make low-budget universal-style horror movies out of them, and they would make tons and tons of money um, for almost no... Just post Hayes Code, so it's okay to show really, really like ripped bodices again. Yes, you can have gore, and in some of these movies, boobs. Um, speaking of which, Russ Meyer, I think, made an early motorcycle movie. You know, it was all. It's always the low budget. You know, the independent guys who are willing to take a risk on the on the faddish new thing. Um, Roger Corman gets uh, a young Peter Bogdanovich of all people to write a motorcycle movie, yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> To this day, I think Bogdanovich doesn't get credit on Wild Angels, but he says he wrote 80% of it. Um, Peter Fonda, as a motorcycle guy, um, in 1967, Fonda again makes Glory Stompers, another, you know, it's such a hit that everybody starts rushing motorcycle movies into, into production. Jack Nicholson stars in Hell's Angels on Wheels, and of course, Fonda and Nicholson then co-star in Easy Rider in, what is that, 69? The greatest movie that let's talk about movies that go nowhere and make no sense. <laughs> the third act of that movie is like, say what now? <laughs> That's kind of a thing like Raiders where the, you know, if the characters actually do nothing, the movie ends about the same. Uh, but between Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde, you know, kind of fairly low budget movies with young pre stars that had been handed, uh, been handed to, um, you know, young auteur directors, all influenced by the French New Wave and the idea that the director could be an artist freed from the Hollywood studio system. You know, the Hollywood studio system, directors were craftsmen. You know, somebody like Fred Zinnemann or Michael Curtiz would make a war th- war movie, and then three months later, they'd be working on a musical, and then three months later, a prestige biopic, and then three months later, a Western. And, and the French changed all that. They said, no, if you're a really good director, you've got a personal touch, and you've got themes you return to. And this was really a peak era where the French were were culturally prominent. Just by virtue of them being French. And I think we liked it over here because they would pick out examples from our lowbrow pop culture and say, right. no, 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 actually. Right, postmodern articles Actually, stagecoach is art and, uh, <laughs> and Coke bottles are art. And when Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde and movies like that were mega hits. It just reinvented Hollywood. You know, suddenly the studios were like, this is what we'll do. We'll give these young Turks tons of, you know, money to make these counterculture movies and everybody will love them and you can make whatever you want. And that's how you get again, Coppola and Scorsese and Lucas and that generation of filmmaker. Star Wars is a crazy new Hollywood movie. It is is crazy. It just starts with, it starts in medias res with a 30 style, um, catching you up crawl and then you just follow some robots for 30 minutes and 
then the hero appears. And I, I have to think about Star Wars a lot because my daughter thinks about nothing else but Star Wars. Yeah. But you really do have to admit, like, wow, it's quite an accomplishment. I'm going to come out and give Star Wars a good review. After all these years, you're finally ready. Yep, I've come around. Do, the, do you want to give it two thumbs up? Two way up? thumbs up. <laughs> the, uh, the motorcycle boom is a boon for one Tom Laughlin, uh, the titular Billy Jack. He's uh, the actor, director, writer, auteur of the Billy Jack oeuvre. Born in 1931 in Wisconsin, goes on to play football for the University of Wisconsin and later Marquette. But uh, right about that age, he sees something that changes his life. Just like so many young creative people at that time, he goes to a production of Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, and I'm okay. sure it's not Brando on Broadway, but but he sees kind of you know he has he has an experience with the theater. He sees what acting can be. He sees what drama can be. You know, it's not your grandpa's um, Shakespeare or even Ibsen. It's gritty and it's contemporary and the actors scratch their armpits. And they mumble. They mumble so Famously much. Famously mumble. And so when he transfers to the University of South Dakota, he studies acting and directing and radio, you know, whatever their major is at the University of South, South sure. Dakota. Famous. Uh, That's the where University you go. Of South Dakota famous. That's where you go for radio acting and Acting program. He meets, a young, uh, he meets a young girl there named Dolores and, uh, and they're soon married. She's interested in... Um, Native American issues. She, having grown up in South Dakota, she's familiar with tribal people, knows Native people, knows how badly they've been treated, and she's kind of a firebrand on... And this is pre-American Indian movement, yeah, which is about the same age as me. It's in the wings. The American Indian movement is about to catch the notice of you know, Marlon Brando of, of, right, right. of Hollywood. And it's about to become a cost celeb. Wounded knee is on the horizon. But right now, he's just got a, he's just got a girlfriend who is, you know you know, feels awful for what the Indian kids in her high school were going through. And, you know, and he's has, in South has, Dakota. Has seen, so and yeah, that's he's, where he's surrounded by it. So he becomes very interested and he, you know, at, with his, this newfound burst of creativity, he writes a script called Billy Jack yeah. about a half Navajo guy. Who's just kind of a cowboy and cowboy boots and, you know, kicks butt and he can't get this movie made. So he heads with his, with his, you know, brand spanking, newly minted South Dakota, um, acting and directing, you know, radio and TV major. He heads out to Hollywood and he kicks a, down the doors. He's a good looking guy. You know, he's a matinee idol looking. He's got these, one of these faces they don't have anymore. With kind of a wide, it's perfect for cinemascope, kind of a wide face with wide, dark eyebrows and a big mouth, you know, kind of a William Devane or Robert Blake. I mean, Warren Beatty's kind of the, the version of this you can take home to mom. But, but he does look like, yeah, right. Robert Blake, where... Where he's got Robert Urich, he's got dimples that yeah. that frame his mouth, and then he always looks like he's bathed in perspiration, but yes. not in a sweaty way. The mouth is a mile wide, yeah. you know, and you know, turned up in a thoughtful way. Um, Hollywood uh, has room for guys who look like that. He plays one of the surfers in Gidget, and he plays one of the CBs in South Josh Logan South Pacific. Um, yeah, he's a he's a guy in the background on a PT boat. Yeah, good looking guy, good yeah. looking guy on a PT boat. Um, but his movie career starts to dry up and in 1961, having never been able to interest anyone in his script, Billy Jack or any of the projects he really likes, he's exhausted with the industry and he and his wife start a Montessori, Montessori preschool in Santa Monica, which wow. ahead of the curve in 1961 becomes the biggest Montessori school in America. 
Wow. He spends five years as a... Making a wood blocks. Yeah, exactly. Teaching kids to touch natural fibers or whatever. They, that's Waldorf. Whatever they do at Montessori schools. You, you wouldn't know. Yeah, it's the same thing. That All the all the toys are made of wood. Um, but uh, in... 1967, uh, American International Pictures, uh, you know, the big independent movie production company, you know, can't compete with, obviously can't compete with MGM or Warner Brothers and Paramount, but they make successful movies because they make hit Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. They make the Beach Blanket Bingo. They, they make all the kind of slightly indie youth movies of the time. Um, they want to make another motorcycle movie. Uh, and the now retired Laughlin, early retired Laughlin sees his opening. You know, I think his preschool has gone under and he thinks this is how I'll get built. You know, he tells American independent pictures. Um, I'll make your motorcycle movie. I'll put in this character named Billy Jack. And they agree to give him $400,000 to make a, a movie. I think based on a, a hell's angels that, you know, uh, white America was terrified of motorcycle gangs. And with some reason, I mean, this was based on a real case where, four women had been raped in Monterey or something by a, by a bad outlaw motorcycle club. And he, uh, you know, makes kind of an early revenge picture based on the fears of white America, which would power a lot of cinema in the seventies, Charles Bronson. And this is, this is right at the kind of trough between fifties Westerns that were super credulous and seventies Westerns or late sixties Westerns that were really ironic and you had to kind of decide then, who is this for? Am I making the Green Berets or am I making something for actual young people? Right. Dirty Harry was the was the big one, right, of yeah. this style. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's just before Dirty Harry. And in fact, when um, by the time he makes his sequel, Billy Jack, in 1971, because, uh, you know, uh, in, in Born Losers becomes a big hit. On its $400,000 budget, it makes $36 million. Whoa. Dollars, 1960s dollars. Yeah, and Laughlin plays the. Yeah, exactly. Laughlin plays the uh, the lead, this kind of cowboy boot wearing maverick who emerges from the hills in Central California to protect this town against the evil Hell's Angels that are menacing them. Um, and so when he makes his sequel, he finally gets to make his Billy Jack script. He kind of has to straddle this line of like, well, who is this for? You know, yeah, yeah. am I am I a cool young guy who cares about? peace and love or am i defending property to america against juvenile delinquents so billy jack if you've ever seen it really tries to split that atom um well and it's post-american indian movement so everybody's aware of of native american issues apparently it's not that problematic for a guy named a guy from wisconsin to play a half navajo not at the time <laughs> but he's still He's uh he's kind of been influenced, I think, by East by spaghetti westerns. Now he's no longer just a cowboy in boots. He's wearing um a black kind of flat brimmed ten gallon hat, Easter hat, uh, Eastwood hat with a with a, a band that has kind of Navajo designs on it. Right. Um, that's a hat that can take a guy from Wisconsin and make him look Native American. It's now shot in Prescott, Arizona, where there's some kind of hippie commune called Freedom College, which is under threat from the mean local townies mm. I, I think um i think a rich kid um maybe assaults one of the girl one of the girl hippies mm. you know pretty girl at this compound and that his dad is the the sheriff or the mayor or something so the town closes ranks so the whole movie is like hippies versus townies and so breaking away except in Arizona. well except a mystery man wanders out of the mountains and and 
and kicks ass. What a weird plot. So Billy, yeah. And I think it is an attempt to kind of, you see it today in Marvel movies where they're like, this is definitely about COVID or Trump or something or immigration, but we can't say that because we don't want to alienate anyone. So, you know, he's defending the young people of the counterculture, but he's doing so just by punching and kicking people. Yeah. The henchmen. Right, he's punching and kicking henchmen. And the mayor. And the mayor. You know, he pops, the, he he kicks the mayor in the head because what has happened is that uh, in the last year, since he wrote the Billy Jack script, Tom Laughlin has discovered martial arts. His dad goes to a, is in a park. Tom Laughlin's dad is in a park at some point and sees a Korean martial arts expert doing a demonstration of Hapkido. Hmm. Uh, and heretofore unknown in, in America, Korean martial art. And his dad is like, you got to see this. And Tom Laughlin just becomes fascinated with Hopkido. And this is also peak Bruce Lee movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's see. When were the first Bruce Lee movies that were released in the U.S.? Um, he died in 73. I know. Enter the Dragon. I mean, all these movies are early 70s, right? Enter the Dragon's late. I feel like all of his um, like Western movies came out uh after the Green Hornet. He was on the Green Hornet TV show. And many posthumously. Enter the yeah. Dragon and Game of Death and Game of Death 2 are all... All 73 and... And later. Later. Um, so I think Tom Laughlin, this white guy from Wisconsin, is actually ahead of the curve on martial arts movies oh, here. okay. Just because his dad saw Hapkido in the park. Uh, and he had a natural gift at it. I don't know. I want to say that. But, yeah, okay. but he studies extensively with Han Bong Su, this, um, this Korean Hapkido master. And, you know, becomes a, you know, he spends six months training on martial arts for the first time in his life. And he's a black belt in the, the, the greatest martial artist in the world. He's plausible. In the movie, I think Han actually doubles. Master Han actually doubles for Tom Laughlin quite a bit, if anything difficult has to happen. Oh. But he's plausible for kind of a... a can kick above his head. A big barrel-chested uh, uh, white guy in this movie. Um, so there's, you know, the famous scene is him just telling the mayor he's going to kick him in the head. And then kicking the mare in the head. Kick that's, you in the head that, and kick you in the head. That's kind of the movie this is. Uh, now, this movie, uh, when Billy Jack comes out in 1971, this is the thing that changes Hollywood again. New, you know, New Hollywood is off and running with these young auteurs, um, Last Picture Show, and you know whatever else the movies of the early 70s are. But Show Last Picture Show to your 10-year-old. I dare you. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Sybil Shepherd scenes probably age pretty well for yeah. a yeah. strong female lead. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. <laughs> Spring is here, John. Spring is sprung. I'm so into it. The the grass is green. The birds are singing. Do you have a spring look you'd like to announce? This is the fashion portion of the omnibus where you announce what's in for spring. Uh colors. <sighs> colors. 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 I love it. How about colors? Me? How about- colors. <laughs> Yeah, gang colors are in. <laughs> Die for your life when your shotgun scatters. How about like maybe cuts or fashion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Colors, cuts, fashion. I think style. Style. Style is going to be big this. You know spring. what? Style's back. <laughs> style is finally. Style's back, back in a big way. You know who's the expert when it comes to stylish essentials? John? Me, me, me. In addition to you, my daughter. Your in addition to you and your daughter. She's very into stylish, fashionable. But number three on the list. Yeah. No less than Mac Weldon. I was about to say Mac Weldon. Mac with a K. Mac Weldon, they've got sweatshirts, they've got sweatpants, and wait, 
sweat shorts. Is that even a thing? Sweat shorts. It's a new thing I mean, that you, Mac Weldon is premiering. You could just buy their sweatpants, mm-hmm. cut them off at the knee, and then you'd have a pair of sweat shorts and uh, maybe two arm warmers? No, why not just get sweat shorts <sighs> right, right out of the box? They feel great. They're really their casual wear is really soft. It feels it nice. Ooh, it's soft. It's good for running. I yep. mean, we're coming out of a pandemic. You might have to leave the house. Uh uh if you want to get into shape yep. before that happens. Yep. Before people seeing you from the neck down. You got all the the options, all of the zip options. You got half zip, you got full zip. Mac Walton does it all. The daily wear system means you can really wear any of their stuff together. So even if style is not what's back for you this spring, well, Mac Weldon will take care of that for you. Yeah, let me push back on that. You you could not be into style at all, and Mac Weldon is your style. You will look fantastic no mm-hmm. matter how unstylish you feel. A lot of it is water resistant. Uh, it's, it's all eco e- eco responsible fabrics. So you know how we feel about Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon's uh, daily wear system, the latest innovation. Give it the program. Follow the science. Colors are in, but also black and gray are in, as always. Check out Mac Weldon for yourself, if you haven't, and save 20% on your first order. We can save you 20%. Visit MacWeldon.com slash time and enter promo code time. Again, that's MacWeldon.com slash time and enter promo code time for 20% off. Find your perfect look for this spring. You better. Billy Jack changes Hollywood after its release. Um, because it's, at first, it does not make any money. Since, um, you know, up until the late 1940s, Hollywood movies were released using what is called block booking. The movie theaters, the big studios all owned a theater chain. Right. Um, which means, Lowe's. which means they, and they had all the muscles. So they could just tell the ones they owned, you know, in their verticals and everybody else, here are the movies that are coming out. You get these and nothing else. And you have to show them. And that was great because they could kneecap independence, you know, newcomers without actually, it didn't matter if the movies were good or bad. They didn't have to advertise. You would see what was coming to your town. And that was what the studio had decided to make for you. You'd literally see it on the, on the, the, uh, the marquee. Yeah. I mean, and the movies, that's why there's a Paramount theater in a lot of cities because Paramount Pictures owned a chain of Paramount theaters. Until 1940, this was all the the brain the brainchild of Adolf Zukor, one of the founders of Paramount, who had come up with this whole idea, and the studios loved it. It didn't matter if the movie was good or bad; it was going to play for so many weeks in so many towns, uh, guaranteed. And then in 1948, the government came knocking. Um, oh, there was an antitrust thing. Truman's antitrust oh. DOJ uh, in the Supreme Court case of United States versus Paramount Pictures decided that essentially block booking was unconstitutional; that the oh. studios could not own. Theater chains. Oh, vertical integration. The government busted uh, a vertical. Six Sigma black belt. (laughs) So from 1948 until Billy Jack's release, uh, until the early 70s, movie studios relied on what was called platform distribution, which was kind of a phased rollout of movies. You'd only have to strike a few prints of a movie. You could show it in In New York and San Francisco. You'd show it in big urban centers. And this would develop word of mouth because there's still a big, there's big local and national print medias and and radio networks. So you'll get critics to talk about these movies and the ones that get buzz, either good or bad, then 
you know, a couple months later, they're showing in suburbia where, you know, people didn't want to drive an hour into the city to see the movie, but they've been hearing about it. Right. So if you look at movie ads from this time, it's all like, some loved it. Some hated it. You can't miss it. Come see Oliver, or you know, or yeah. whatever, whatever it is. You remember from when, here to eternity when movies debuted in New York, and then it took weeks to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was annoying, but it, movie theaters loved it because it would just build anticipation. Right. There's, they don't have to worry about a bunch of competition because again, no home video, no streaming, three TV channels, and from then, from suburbia, it would move on to even you know more and more remote and uh, places and smaller theaters. And this would be a process that would last months or more likely years. You know, movies would kind of move outward from New York and L.A. and then Chicago for for a year or two. Eventually, they would come to Alaska. <laughs> Is that what, what you Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, oh, yeah. You'd go to movies months later. Alaska was not where they were debuting movies. And, I mean, it's, it kind of got reinvented by Weinstein's Miramax in the 90s, that you could leverage the same thing. You, you open it up. You know, that, this would happen to indie movies because it was much oh. cheaper. It, you'd open it up in New York and L.A., You'd, you know, Siskel and Ebert would love it, and then, then you'd have some, some grounds to to do a wider release because you know you've got a built-in audience. But a lot of movies died on the vine, debuted in New York. Nobody went to see it, and they didn't didn't get a wide release. Some would die on the vine. Yeah, I mean, you you could leverage bad reviews. You know, you could right. you, you could say like because because often this you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. They would there would still be these. Um, contrarian reviews from Pauline Kael or David Denby just dicing up a, an audience-pleasing movie or whatever. And they, they, they would say in the ads, you know, come see for yourself the movie that everyone's angry about. Right. Um, but studios love this again because all the advertising was basically free. They could still strike a small number of prints and they never had to run a publicity campaign because right. they would have movie critics doing it for them, you know? Right, right, right. Um, and basically, this is a time when everything everything is moderately profitable because you'll still come see the new movies through town, and movies are cheap. Right, they don't take a hundred million dollars to 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 do a big uh, production like Chinatown in nineteen seventy three cost three million dollars. Wow! But think about all the special effects in Chinatown. <laughs> that was the thing. Movies didn't have that. You know, movies would have eight or nine effect shots, even if they were some kind of elaborate. Uh, genre piece because every movie cost a few million dollars which which meant executives were fine they could sit pretty and enjoy their sweet la lifestyle um but then a couple things happened at the same time like cocaine happened hello so you've got a new breed of movie exec a new more type a kind of thinking in hollywood a lot of the movie a lot of the um studios got bought or um or merged with with uh, you know a bigger business with a New York presence, and so suddenly you've got money guys in New York oh boy. who are asking for for uh, Return. box office returns every yeah. week. Huge bummer. You, yeah, you know Alan Ladd Jr. could just be like, yeah, sure, you know it'll we'll give Mike Nichols a million dollars to make whatever, and it'll probably make one point two million. Perfect. Um, and that all changes. Uh. And really, the thing that changed it is Billy Jack. Uh, when Tom Laughlin signed his deal with Warner Brothers to distribute Billy Jack, he had gotten a clause that would give him control and veto rights over how the movie was, um, publicity campaigns, advertising, um, the release strategy for the movie. Because of the his, his hit in the 60s. Yeah, because Born Losers, the previous Billy Jack movie, had made 
what, like a, a lot, a hundred times its budget, yeah. basically. Um, am I doing that right? Yeah, that's right. A hundred times its budget. So he had, he, you know, he could negotiate this kind of thing. And again, in New Hollywood, the studios are willing to give these young guys money because you might get an easy writer-sized hit. Who knows? Um, but then Warner Brothers just screws him. They renege on the deal. They put it out in 12 theaters. They don't have any ads. They No advertising whatsoever. And the movie tanks. Um, it turns out it's a few years later and six years later, or five, four years later, nobody wants to see a Billy Jack spinoff. Doesn't seem like Pauline Kale's going to give it a good review either. It's not the kind of thing that critics are going to rally around. So it's not ideal for this kind of platforming. So Laughlin is like, well, you know, he's, you know, he's like Billy Jack. He's a maverick. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, he's not walking around barefoot doing hop keto kicks, but you know, the equivalent, the, the LA eccentric equivalent, he flies to Minneapolis, takes $5,000 of his own money, rents a theater and runs his own local advertising campaign. And the movie does great business in Minneapolis. Oh, And he tells Warner brothers, Hey, I've got this thing. Here's how we'll do it. You know, I've got this. And Warner Brothers is like, no, this movie already failed. We're done with Billy Jack. But he's got this contract saying he's got approval over ad campaigns. He's got a, he gets, he lawyers up and he sues Warner Brothers. And in their set, as part of the settlement to make it go away, because Warner Brothers has screwed this up, they agree that they will do a 70, 1973 re-release. It's two years after Billy Jack comes out. They're going to re-release it um, with a whole new campaign. And this time they're going to get this guy off. Their yeah, back. Just to get this guy off their back. They don't have any hopes of Billy Jack actually being a hit in re-release. <laughs> uh-huh. That would be unprecedented for a little kind of a little indie movie like this to be a hit. But this time Laughlin has camp has more control over this promotion campaign. And he's got a guy in his distribution company named Max Youngstein, who ha- has extensive experience in re- in watching, uh, in releasing, uh, and watching the release of a lot of low-budget movies. Um, you know, even lower than Roger Corman AIP movies, like just wildlife documentaries, exploitation films. How do you make money releasing stuff like that and competing with, with Ben-Hur? And they had a thing called four-walling, where they were, the idea is you're just surrounding the average moviegoer with your movie on all four walls. You surround them. You oversaturate the market... You make a bunch of money quick. Uh-huh. So word of mouth, no, it's not that word of mouth doesn't power the movie. And word of mouth is irrelevant. You, you're hoping to circumvent word of mouth because now there's no risk. It's called impressions. Yeah. When we, when we were uh, trying to sell records, they always said, you know, you need five different impressions. A, a, a record buyer has to see it five different times in five different places. Because you won't just see one Rolling Stone review or one Letterman Right. song and, and go out and buy a record but then if you have to get out get the idea of you're breeding fomo you're, you're getting giving people the idea they're missing something right if the record's sitting at the end cap in the record store if there's a review in the local weekly you know all that stuff so max Youngstein has seen that if you can surround people like this the the movie will be a hit before anybody discovers it's bad and he keeps trying to tell hollywood this is actually how you do it this is how you maximize returns on movies like these close to the wire places with no margins have had to do this and you guys could do this too. And you'd up your profits and Youngstein finally has a chance with Billy Jack. So he says, we adapted every proven principle of distribution and merchandising from general motors to Coca-Cola Revlon, all these companies that had figured out impressions surround the consumer because studios weren't interested in this, but every other industry had invented modern advertising by 1973. Right. 
And here, his big innovation was we booked it not into a single theater or two theaters or even 20 theaters. In our first week, we booked the picture into over 60 theaters. This was revolution. This is, you know, today, today you book movies on thousands of screens. Right. But this was revolutionary in 1973. No other movie had done that. I think The Godfather had, uh, let's see, The Godfather had been on 54 screens the year before. And that was the record for you. Know, Whoa. Whereas Billy Jack on 61 screens, four wall situations all over LA, in its first six days, it grossed $900,000. Basically, a, a Godfather-sized hit. Um, on, Whoa. I have checked my personal experience at Young Scene, every possible company I could find, and my conclusion is this is the highest gross for any picture, either new or old, ever to be released in its first week in Southern California. Billy Jack. Billy Jack becomes the biggest first week debut ever. In history. Wow. A Godfather-sized hit. And Hollywood cannot help but notice. Like, they've seen what happens. Basically, Hollywood has learned overnight, oh, you just need to surround the customer with the drumbeat of the new movie. And if it's on every screen, they won't have to make an appointment. You know, they don't have to think, oh, honey, let's go down to the to the Egyptian on Saturday and see the new thing at either 6 or, or 8. It's really just you show up at a theater and, well, I guess it's Billy Jack. Yeah, you know, right. Um, Young scene says, I don't claim that a terrible picture can be made into a winner, but I do say that regardless of how bad it is with intelligent and imaginative distribution and promotion, it will do a hell of a lot greater business than if you just let it go down the drain. So Hollywood realizes, I mean, you can see the writing on the wall. Movies no longer have to be good. Movies no longer have to have to um, appeal to critics or even provoke critics. You can just make any old thing. And if you use Coke and GM ad strategies, it's profitable. So Warner Brothers in 1973 has a problem. They've got a movie they spent a ton of money on. It's coming out at Christmas, but it's full of swearing and a little girl who's um, pleasuring herself with a crucifix. Oh, dear. They've got The Exorcist, and they are worried. They think it's not going to make a cent because it's going to be a huge divisive thing. But they see Billy Jack, and they're like, well, I mean, with very little to lose, let's four-wall The Exorcist. Let's do the five impressions thing. No other studio has ever tried to four-wall a big production like this. Um, and a horror movie and a yeah. Satan movie. It's, it's, it's the most divisive movie. Like, nobody thinks this is going to be a nationwide conversation tentpole mega hit. There's just no chance. Like, they're trying to avoid a super flop. Let's get this in front of people before they realize what they're what we've made. Um, so the movie comes out at Christmas 1973. Pauline Kael hates it. Andrew Saris hates it. Vincent Canby hates it. At $3 a ticket, The Exorcist makes $160 million. Wow. I mean, I remember when The Exorcist was everywhere, and I wasn't allowed to see it because I was a kid, but it was everywhere. If I remember right, it was the biggest movie of 1973. So a movie that they were worried about, you know, let's let's get this niche exploitation he hit. Um, and that changes Hollywood overnight. Because uh, uh, suddenly, the money men in New York see numbers, right. and they think there's no reason to ever make or market a movie a different way. Like, you know, they're just bean counters. Like, this is how you do it. Um, what the, day, the week that The Exorcist Gross comes in, I guess... Warner Brothers executive Dick Letterer walks into the office of a fellow executive, Barry Beckerman, and shows him the numbers. And he said, kid, the fun is over. 
There are guys in New York. This is account is from Sam Wasson's book about the making of Chinatown, which I really enjoyed. There are guys in New York looking at these figures saying, this is the kind of money you can make in the movie business. Like they they didn't realize like now they're like, wait for 50 years, you guys have just been dicking around and going to pool parties, leaving money on the table, leaving money on the table. We've been having a good time out here. We've been very successful, but it's going to get real successful after this. Oh dear. So two years later, Jaws, four years later, Star Wars. And now 40 years later, um, a hundred percent, you know, Grindelwald and, uh, Lego based movies. Wow. Every time you go to the theater. How many Billy Jack movies were there in the end? Tom Laughlin went on to make, he'd already made Born Loser, uh, Born Losers and Billy Jack. He made The Trial of Billy Jack, which was a hit. And then he made a remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, hmm. where Billy Jack somehow takes over a vacated Senate seat and is appalled by the corruption in our nation's capital. Sure. It's the same thing, but he's high-kicking uh, the Senate Majority Leader or something. And then this becomes and, First Blood, right? Th- this becomes the Vietnam movies of the 80s. I really don't think you get First Blood. And, all, and maybe all those Charles Bronson right. revenge movies, you know, the fear of, of white suburbia in, in multiplexes without Billy Jack. But the funny thing is, like, you know, Born, Born Losers gives us new Hollywood. It creates this kind of magical decade of... of Peter Bogdanovich uh, and being able to make whatever movie he wants. Um, But then Billy Jack accidentally gives us this new way of marketing movies, which leads to uh, profit maximization, which kills off new Hollywood and gives us the blockbuster age of the eighties. What's interesting is that there still remained a certain amount of artistry in big movies, even goofy ones. What, what era are you thinking here? Through the 80s, you know, through even sure. the 90s. Like, it took it took a while for movies to become solely a, like, a corporate product. And kind of a Pavlovian, just give them something in their retinas every... Yeah. All these TV commercial guys being given movies. Like, people Charlie's were Angels aiming guy. for a big hit... But there was still room in Hollywood for all these little, you know, teen comedies and and, and arty films and and doofy movies that that uh, sort of broke even. But I guess it was sort of like the record industry at that point in time. We were still a very captive audience, and so you could do adventures in babysitting, and there was nothing else to watch. Yeah, people would go, but. It, it it definitely feels like the like Marvel Studios more than anything when they started printing money, it was the final nail in that coffin. And the movies are kind of well made, like not in a Spielbergian sense, but you know, in the sense that clearly a uh, a, a big group of very smart people has really machined this movie to be to to land in every way it can. And also, you don't those, have a bad time. Those but. movies, the actors are also super charismatic. Like they're cast so well that you just want to watch. You want to watch those people just chew scenery, uh, but now that's a, now that's just produced the superhero movie, the sub superhero movie where the actors aren't interesting and the plot isn't interesting and the special effects aren't interesting, but it still is a hundred million dollar movie. There's just not enough movie stars, I think. I, I've I've read about indie directors who are unable to whose projects fall apart because every single person they attach to their movie then gets lured away by Marvel a month later oh. with a big paycheck and a franchise. The good the good actors, you mean, yeah. Yeah, because indie movies need one or two genuine stars to get financing, and now they can't get them because Marvel needs every movie star because 
in an unprecedented moment in entertainment history, they've got now a hundred character universe to water and maintain. Yeah. You know, like Star Wars was never worried about um, casting a big star as IG-88 or Bosk, but... Well, watching the the Batman movie, when and spoiler alert, when Paul Dano finally appears on the screen as himself, I was like, oh, where have you been? You're great. Like, of course you're the villain in this movie. I had actually forgotten it was going to be Paul Dano. For yeah. some reason, I was like, wait, who is it? Joseph Gordon-Levitt? And then Paul Dano appears, and I was like, right. I didn't expect it either. And then, of course, you watch Zoe Kravitz uh, look at a jar of tomatoes. That's a movie star. Right? So it's still possible. And the guy from um, the guy from Twilight has a gravelly voice, if he wants. Tom Laughlin uh, tried to bring Billy Jack back in the 80s. Oh. He was would have been peak time. He was halfway through Billy Jack Returns, which would have cashed in on Rambo and uh, what's Bronson's name in all those movies? Whatever those Death Wish movies are. Yeah. Uh, and but I think sadly he got uh, he took a bottle to the head doing a stunt halfway through shooting. Oh no! And uh, it really did a number on him. They had to they had to stop the shoot. Oh bummer! And uh, I think it really kind of stuck with him for the rest of his life. When he died in in 2013. Um, the obituaries asked for donations to be given to an Alzheimer's foundation. So I assume he'd been dealing with oh, he got conked and dementia of old age oh, for a while before. Bad. But but there's still half of a Billy Jack movie sitting unreleased because of a stunt gone wrong. Um, but I don't know. Like you know, there's still the all these romantic comedies and the movies they don't make anymore. They still exist in abundance yeah. on streaming. It's not like people have have right. lost that itch. Um, but don't you do the thing where you go on your on streaming and click through. I mean, this is why you made a list of the best movies of the eighties. Cause there's just too much. I just, I'm like, just like, nope, 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 nope. And I don't know. I don't know what's there that I'm noping. Simultaneously too much and too little. Yeah. Right. Right. I feel like I nope things that are great. And I still <laughs> manage to watch things that are bad. I mean, honestly, the money right now is probably not in figuring out how to get people to, to watch movies communally in a public space. That's probably gone. But, if any of these streaming services could actually figure out curation in a way that makes sense. Right. You that's know, what you thought it was going to be, right? That there, that there would be, this is going to be smarter than going to the multiplex. Right. Uh, it turns out, no, they all have terrible interfaces and are terrible at showing you what you might actually like, uh, or reminding you of something you missed. Yeah. Netflix now has 7,000 employees and they can't do anything right. So, you know, in the future, of course, that's all been solved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. we're speaking. Whoever gets, whoever's listening to this, has their own entertainment, and it's, it's surely perfectly individualized to yeah. their taste. Uh, entertainment is like garanimals. Like right? there's seven kinds, and you're either a bear, you're a fox, you're a badger. But if that's true, there's nobody to argue with. You know, like if everybody's seeing just the little mini niches that appeal to them. I mean. Even even when I don't go to movie theaters, I want to I want to talk to somebody else who has seen the same movie. You yeah. wanted to tell me what you thought about the Batman. Oh, I wanted yeah. to tell you what I thought about the Batman. Like, there's something just very hollow and lonely about just seeing the Batman yourself and then wandering back into real life. And that was just three hours of soma, three hours gone. <laughs> right, right, yeah. But I wonder. I want to talk to you about the Batman, but I don't want to hear you talk about some spidey reboot. I think what happens is you want to talk about, you want to talk about the Batman to me, but you don't want to hear me talk about the Batman. Oh, I love hearing you talk about the Batman. (laughs) 
Uh, I we just, need a place where everyone can give opinions with the illusion of an audience, but never have to actually receive them. Hmm. Like a place where you could send out a short message. 260 and, character message. And then everybody could read it and comment, even though you, I mean, you, you don't, just don't know them. them or don't care who they are. I hope somebody comes up with that. Hmm. And that concludes Billy Jack, entry 122.LV1933, certificate number 33734 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can uh, hang out with other Futurelings and uh, have a good old time. They're a fun, fun bunch of people at uh, the Futurelings, anywhere that social media allows one to congregate. Uh, you can mail us things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Ken, sounds like you're opening the mail. I just there. opened a letter right now, which I thought was just a letter, but actually has a little prize. Hmm. Uh, a Mr. Ms. or Mix Rust from Missouri. It looks like maybe Kevin or Carrie. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Kevin slash Carrie Rust. Kevin and or Carrie. Um, thank you, uh, Sir, Madam, or... Or, or non-binary. Mm-hmm. Um, Victor Victoria. You need better handwriting so we can read your name. But they sent us, we just heard the uh, the entry about the mill, the mm-hmm. thousandth of a dollar coin, and sent us an actual Missouri mill. I guess Missouri, for some reason, was minting its own tenth of a cent Does it have a coins. date on it? This says they, he says they were minted in the Great Depression. So that sales tax on gas can be paid for fractional cents. Oh, I guess that's what we said in the show. Oh, I see. But I don't know if this, this can't be that old, right? I don't see. Let me see. Is this a thing where you put a penny into a squeezer and it comes out as a Missouri mill? Well, it's very, it's so discolored. It's even hard to tell what this originally was. Zinc. It's got a map of Missouri with a one icon on it. Because it does look like zinc. It's, it's blackened by time now. Sales tax receipt, it says. So I guess you would use it to pay for sales tax. And this is an interesting thing. The uh, oh, the sister. No, that's right. He he looked it up, and they are sales tax um, for sales tax payment. The from uh, the thirties on the front and obverse are the same, <laughs> which is I've never seen a coin like that. You could, you'd be the worst Batman supervillain ever if you try if you were the mill. <laughs> I'm gonna flip this coin, and we'll see if, what happens. To if you. a map of Missouri comes up, I'm gonna <laughs> let you go, Batman. Damn it! Happened again. Uh, please support the show. Your generous contributions allow us to uh, keep fl- fleshing out this bunker down here, which um, is made of flesh. And, <laughs> Do you think uh, people will donate if they know how much human flesh you decorate with? <laughs> uh, that's at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.